Hello and welcome to the Monash Musculoskeletal Research Unit podcast. My name's Luke Perriton from MMRU and the Department of Physiotherapy at Monash University. And in this episode, we're going to continue with part two of our discussion with Associate Professor Kylie Williams, podiatrist and researcher from Monash University. So if you haven't listened to part one of the discussion in the previous episode, go back now and listen to the introduction where I talk about Kylie and her background and interests. And in part two, we're going to take a deeper dive into Kylie's research and some of the concepts that she was talking about in part one. So Kylie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Luke. So you received a National Health and Medical Research Council, or NHMRC Health Professionals Fellowship to support your research. So congratulations for that fellowship. And I wanted to ask you, what was the research projects that you led during your fellowship? And can you tell us a little bit more about the outcomes of the research? Thanks, Luke. I was um, very fortunate to be the first and very proud to be the first female podiatrist to receive one of those fellowships. And at the time, I think I was one of four um, podiatrists who have ever read um, received one of those fellowships. So um, it's finished now. So I'm now on the grant hunt again. But um, I received that fellowship to I guess do some preliminary work and to see where that work would take me. Um, one of the first projects we did within that was about understanding the use of what's called low frequency ultrasonic debridement, which is um, basically like a gurney. So if you're a spray gun with water that um, is used for wound care and as disgusting as that sounds, these um, gurneys are used in our healthcare settings and uh we had a, an amazing PhD student who went on to test this type of equipment, so LFUD, to see um, what happened. And one of the things she found was this gurney, <laughs> water gurney, um, required substantial modifications to make it safe in our health system. And she, her research resulted in um, changing that equipment all around the world to make it safer, decrease um, transmission of harmful pathogens into the air through aerosolization because of this water mist spray. The evidence is a, is a little bit inconclusive about whether there was benefit, um, but it was the first in um, human trial with this equipment equipment, um, everything else had been done sort of in, in laboratory type settings. Um, I will be honest that I have no desire to ever do that sort of research again, um, but I think it's opened the door for many other colleagues to um, move on that one and I don't really want to, I don't really want to go down that path, it's a bit yuck. Um, the other two areas of that research was around the use of um, goal-setting conversations with people who have diabetes-related foot wounds. And um, when we give messages or self-care messages, how many do we give them? How complex do we make our consultations and are people actually able to retain that information? We found some really interesting things that we deliver sometimes up to seven or eight really tricky complex messy messages and that um, by the time the person leaves the office particularly if they are in a, an acute phase of a foot wound they've already forgotten what they were told and their their main message would be pay the bill when I walk out the door sort of thing um, it, it's led to some further work where we're categorizing what communication actually is where we're um, trying to unpack 
um, the different elements in communication and also to try and understand um, how we can deliver our messages that are more uh, personalised to the person sitting in front of us that some people are able to take complex messaging and some people aren't. And the other thing within um, my fellowship was um, was around idiopathic toe walking and developing a clinician sensitive tool and the work's ongoing there to a tool to measure outcomes that is for clinicians the it's a it's a tricky condition to treat um we've developed stage one in that we've tried to unpack what are the important measures for treatment success uh treatment success by the clinician and treatment success by the parent because those two do not meet at all and that's a whole other conversation and we're in the process um, at the moment of just finishing up a little bit of work in that actually validating a, a, a scale that we made um, as part of that research to understand how a clinician can routinely and uh, reliably scale how um, that child is progressing through any sort of treatment so so three very very different um very different topics um, and ones that um, I guess we've got lots, like all research, lots more to do in that area. So you found some of it challenging and maybe you don't want to do it again, but <laughs> there's a lot of that research is currently impacting in, on clinical practice and helping people. So there must be a certain amount of satisfaction there in having taken that on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the benefits of all these is um, that additional engagement with clinicians and also um, MPhil students um, and PhD students along the journey. So two of those projects had um, a PhD student and another had a um, Master's of Philosophy MPhil student attached to them. And then and then the, the idiopathic toe walking is, I guess, my passion project that um, I don't always give all very easily. <laughs> well, let's talk about your passion project. Let's talk yeah. about idiopathic toe walking. And one of the papers from your PhD focused on developing and validating an exclusionary method to identify potential reasons for toe walking. And that's a paper that you're really proud of. It's been cited a lot of times and included in clinical guidelines. It's been tra translated in different languages, which is amazing in itself. But how's this paper changed podiatry practice? In, so this was in 2010 it was published and we can put it in the show description so everyone can have a look. But I'm interested in your perspectives on how it's changed podiatry practice because that's really important. Mm. And I, I probably, to me, this one is not just about podiatrists. So I probably get more emails from physiotherapists about this one. Uh, it, it was an exclusionary tool. Idiopathic toe walking is a diagnosis by exclusion. In by its pure uh, wording, you have to exclude everything that might be causing toe walking gait. We know there's neurological conditions that cause toe walking gait, like cerebral palsy and muscular dystrophy. We know there's there's um, developmental uh, conditions that cause toe walking, from say autism, developmental coordination disorder, um, intellectual disability. We all um, we also know that there's orthopedic conditions that cause toe walking gait, so uh, an unresolved club foot or CTEV or limb length discrepancy. Uh, these conditions are all 
They don't have to be unilateral. They don't have to be bilateral, but there is a reason for that toe walking gait to be there. And only when you exclude all of those do you end up with this idiopathic toe walking, which makes it the most frustrating diagnosis. And one of the, there's, there's some serious conditions that cause kids to walk on their tiptoes where early intervention is really important, um, where sometimes um, emergency intervention is really important. Say in the, the case of a tethered cord where a child presents, it's a new toe walking gait without pain. There may be um, some sort of saddle or continence change. There's loss of skills. That's an emergency. Kids don't all of a sudden start walking up on their tiptoes and then one day um, wet their pants at school and um, or start to fall over. These, these become things that escalate care. And so the, the concept of this tool, I just wanted something to help kids enter into toe walking studies easier without having to get all children assessed by a, a neurologist. Um, however, the, on the, the, the face of it, what's going on now, it's still used for that. There's a number of cohort studies and, and randomised control trials that have used it as a entry uh, to uh, into their study. But what it's happening now is creating that dialogue that every child who toe walks should have a really comprehensive assessment that it goes through little uh, questions that don't necessarily make a diagnosis of another condition there, but highlight that if there's a yes, then they probably need to be referred or they should be referred to um, someone with more skill than yourself to make that diagnosis. And whether that's an escalation to a pediatrician or a neurologist or a rehab physician, or um, it, it's someone other than you, if you can't unpack that, it needs more, more further investigation. And in the past, were those more serious diagnoses being missed? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And to be honest, we still get kids that have seen two or three health professionals and um, have gone through and their, their toe walking is getting worse. And uh, toe walking is a really tricky little subject. And there's, by the time a child is three, if they are toe walking, they should have a really thorough assessment by someone who really understands toe walking, uh, by who's someone who is able to look at the whole child, not just their feet, who does comprehensive muscle changes, developmental, um, developmental assessment and neurological assessment. You need those three systematic ways of understanding. And sometimes it can only be one little question in that that gives you a yes or no. This tool is really simple. It's yes, no, it's nothing, it's not rocket science. Um, but it gives you an indicator that even if you get one and you can't really unpack what that is, then you should send the child to somewhere else. And that I think was the beauty of the child still might have idiopathic toe walking, but you mightn't be the person to kind of unpack that or assess that, or you might require someone with additional skills and access to technology, say a, a brain MRI or a CT scan or um, something to make that diagnosis. So I think they're really concrete recommendations. It's really useful to hear you summarise them like that. And of course, people can read more on the topic and we'll put the links to that paper and to anything else that you recommend during our chat in the show description. Since that was published and that was, your, that was one of your PhD papers and that was 11 years ago, 
how's the field of idiopathic toe walking changed or another question related question is what else needs to be researched in the area yeah it's changed massively um when i did my phd there was three papers investigating the role of the sensory system so how we how we um perceive movement and feel and hear and smell and touch and um, there was three papers on how it might interface with idiopathic toe walking. Uh, what my PhD was one of the first um, that systematically used empirical testing, and we found that uh, that kids processed touch and vestibular system and had different motor skills than uh, when they were an idiop- when they had idiopathic toe walking than their typically developing peers. And since that, we've seen little cohorts around the world um, replicating that research um, with some with different findings, which was really scary as a researcher to have someone replicate your protocol and get something completely different. But now once I got over that original panic and emailed the research team that, that we I, I now collaborate with that research team um, excitedly because I think it highlights how diverse this group of kids are. They, they are this really heterogeneous group of, of little people that present with all of these different uh, subtle challenges which mess our results up when you're kind of looking at, at them in a small group. Um, since that time, we've used vibration, we've used... Um, we've, we've used... Uh, sensory profiles we've looked at how they move on and my team hasn't another team has looked at floor surface change Uh, we've had a pilot recently that we had to unfortunately stop early due to COVID with the use of sensory insoles that demonstrated change in a really small number of children but we hand-picked those children with the use of some standardized testing beforehand so we're learning more and more about the tactile sensory system and how it is it interfaces with some children who have toe walking. We've also learned that um, there are very few evidence-informed um, evidence-informed treatment methods that work for all children. That idiopathic toe walking is this diagnosis where you've got little baskets or buckets of treatment and you kind of got to go delving into them and and maybe sometimes try one or two or three things but on the flip side when we've done some interviews with parents they 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 love when we tell them we don't know if something's going to work and they're so sick of being sold shoddy um treatment ideals um and things don't work um exercise projects programs are really hard on busy families and that makes um when they fail the parents feel like they've failed and so treatment with this group is really hard um it needs to be tailored and goal set and what does treatment success look like because we go oh we've got rid of your ankle Aquinas yay um and a parent still watch their child toe walk across the room now, we see success because they can get their heels to the ground. The parent just wants the child to stop toe walking. And so we've learned a lot about the, the condition. Um, we've learned a lot about how health professionals are treating it and how they are probably um, not treating it as well as we could. 
Um, where we're going to now is a number of things. We're hoping to replicate some of the sensory treatment um, ideals that we've we've done little tiny tests on. We've got kids at the moment, we, we've uh, done some pilot testing of kids making sensory decisions while having a, a functional MRI. And so we're we're mapping how their brain processes a sensory or a tactile decision, which the pilot data is fascinating. And we can we can say on our pilot data that our typically developing children all map these decisions fairly similarly and our toe-walking kids, just like all the other stuff, are all over the place. They all use different parts of their brain or different um, processes to make those decisions. It's not to say those it's wrong, it's just different. That gives us loads of opportunities to explore what sensation does in gait and how those decisions may impact on how children choose or not choose to use their feet when they're walking. Fascinating. And there's so much to it. You've come so far since the, yeah. the case presentation you mentioned in part one of our discussion yeah. on a child with idiopathic toe walking and you weren't sure what it was. And we're getting, yeah. getting to the point of fMRI studies and investigating the sensory system. And that's really interesting. Um, and also what, what I found was interesting was when you talked about reproducing your research findings. That's science at its purest, yeah. isn't it? Another research group reproduces your methodology, finds different things, and you end up collaborating. So that's yep. really a story we can all um, enjoy hearing because that's science at its best, isn't it? What yep. about, let's have some fun. Let's go into some of the, the pictures I've seen on Twitter of your research. <laughs> now, I know that research is hard work and there's a, there's a lot of work that goes on there, but I've seen some pictures of tiny kids in the biomechanics <laughs> lab with 3D markers on their bodies and having a tantrum and falling over and, <laughs> and, and maybe doing some gait analysis as well. What's the story? What, what was that research all about? I've um, been fortunate enough to be engaged with a shoe company as full disclosure, have been paid by a shoe company, so Bobox, to um, do some research in little kids' shoes. And you've been involved, Luke, in some of I this, but, but the project you're talking about is um, they wanted to understand how their first walkers or their explorer shoes um, impacted first walkers because there's a lot of random claims out there of what a shoe can do to children and they really wanted to understand when you put a shoe on a new walker what does it actually do and enter in my um, my partner in crime um, Dr Cade Patterson at uh, Monash at sorry Monash oh we might get into Monash no at Melbourne University um, and the the gate lab there and when and Jessica my research assistant and a biomechanic biomechanical engineer and we did <laughs> bike on 3d analysis on new walkers and our definition was, was um, they had to be walking within the last 12 weeks and so we're talking little teeny tiny people making them kind of try to walk in a straight line with markers all over their bodies and um, we use we we used to talk about um, doing gait analysis with two to four-year-olds as herding cats. This was like herding cats on fire. Um, it was 
both the best <laughs> biggest nightmare. When it worked, it worked. You stuck these little dots on and off they went. And when it didn't, there was screaming and snot and the outtakes <laughs> were fantastic. We've got markers. Um, we've got video of mums with um, with shiny reflector markers on their nose as a child is trying to um, chase after them. We used bribery. Um, it, it was... It was hilarious, a really fun project. We learnt that it is so hard to do gait analysis with kids. It's even harder to do foot models with kids where you put a shoe on and understand what the rear foot and the midfoot's doing. We did it. We think we did it well. We've got a publication at the moment under peer review. Um, but what it did do and this is one of the reasons I love working with Bobox is it did enable the conversation around what a shoe does and doesn't do and what it basically didn't do was much it didn't really change kids walking it didn't really change how they moved the amounts that it did change while it might be statistically significant we do not believe it's clinically significant and so when we're talking about how when we put shoes on a little person, we put them on to protect their feet and we should be able to quite confidently do that without thinking that it's going to stuff up their foot or leg or walking, that it's just a thing at the end of their foot that's stopping them from standing on something hot or sharp. And so I think there's a lot of applications there. We learnt a lot. Um, we know some ways that we might do it differently in the future. But I guess it um, footwear is a it, footwear and kids, it's a $52 million industry. There is a lot of interesting claims out there on what shoes do and don't do for little kids. So I think it opens a lot of opportunities for future research to, to kind of unpack what they actually do and don't do. As a podiatrist with kids, when your kids were young, when you said, shoes on, did they do what they do for every other parent or did you yes. have some extra power over them there? I had no power. No, oh, good. no power at all. I feel better. Yeah, I was that parent that my husband would randomly tell me that my children's shoes were too tight. So, yeah, <laughs> no power. <laughs> like the rest of us. All right, yeah. now, another fun question. Yeah, you've got $100 million to spend <sighs> on podiatry research. Or any, or any health services or any research in yep. these amazing areas of research you've been describing, where do you start? I'd probably separate that into two, and I've talked about it a little bit. I would spend half of it on just changing how we think, talk, and act with toe walking. Um, I would use a big chunk of it on translation and, and reform because we have a lot of very interesting practice and I'd use it on global change because parents are really sick of their journey um, or they've told us their journeys are different dependent on where they live, um, on um, who they see. They see multiple people and get told different things and if we could harmonise how we speak about it and um, treat it as a global unit of health professionals, then I think we'd have a lot better outcomes for our families. They they deserve better. Uh, I'd subtype toe walking 
I'd try and tease out why some children who have idiopathic toe walking seem to have a little bit more tone but don't meet the threshold for cerebral palsy. Or some have these sensory challenges that don't meet the threshold for, say, intellectual disability or, or autism or developmental coordination disorder. I'd then kind of take, turn the corner and try and reform the footwear industry for kids try and get rid of some of these really shoddy messages that um, footwear impacts brain development and if you wear shoes your feet are going to be floppy and um, if you don't wear shoes that um, your feet are going to be far more healthy. Shoes can be the first treatment for some kids who are having walking problems but we don't know which particular features do that and I'll try and globalise the way we all think about shoes because shoes are thought about differently in Asia as they are to how um, shoes in, in sort of countries where there's snow and shoes in Australia, we, we have the disparity between far north and um, down in, in Hobart and yet the incidence of children's foot problems aren't overly that different. So where we've got a global change in how shoes are worn but we don't tend to have huge differences in foot problems. Are shoes really as clever as some people think they actually are? There, there, there are um, opportunities for shoes to be cheap treatment, and I think that would be a fantastic way to understand what are the, the particular features that help keep children walking and running um, versus those that they are just a excellent fashion item that um, kids can have that choice in colour and shape and they really just wear them so they don't fall over or stub their toe in the playground. Well, Kylie, we really appreciate your time coming on the podcast and a really interesting couple of conversations we've had. Um, we've mentioned your social media handles in the last part one. We'll mention them again. So it was Kylie at it was uh, um, Kylie Pe Peds Pod. Kylie Peds yeah. Pod. Thank you. We'll <laughs> pop that in the show description as well. And anything else you'd like to add? Um, we'd love to promote the uh, Monash University Supervisor Connect. That if you do have an interest in doing research from time to time, our researchers uh, at the um, at, within physio and within the school, we put up projects. So if Google our names. Make sure that you can, if there's something of interest, please connect with us. Uh, we might be the ones to help take you on your next research journey. Excellent. Well, thanks, Kylie, so much for your time. And if you're able to come back for another chat in the future, we'd really love to have you back. And for now, thanks, everyone, and see you next time. Thanks, Luke. See ya.